Amen. Amen. Uh, I love mornings like this morning where we do just strip down simplistic worship and we get to hear everyone singing. Makes the hairs on my arms stand up. And I praise the Lord that I got to sing this morning because as you can hear, I've been dealing with this throat issue all morning. But this morning was the first morning I didn't wake up hacking and coughing. So, uh, no, I think I should be okay without tea. Thank you, Sheree. Um, but yeah, glad I got to sing this morning. So that is an answer to prayer. A lot of, love those songs. Uh, I want you to have this mental picture before we get into the scripture this morning, and hopefully it will help you and prepare you. Reading the word of God is like a man going on a journey. Sometimes there are straight, smooth paths, and we read it, and it's easy, and we, and we, and, and we take it in. Sometimes there are steep rock faces that we have to work our way through to get to the mountain vistas where we get to see the grand plan of God's redemption. We, the, the effort needs to be put in to understand the bigger picture. Sometimes it's sitting down beside quiet streams and just taking in the soothing sounds of the waters. And it should be that many times. Other times, like this morning, it is like wading through rapids. And if you've ever done that, you've got to be careful for the slippery rocks. But it is worth it because the rush and the exhilaration of the water around your, your ankles. But usually, there's a meadow on the other side where there is comfort and there is peace and there is relaxation. But if you put in the work, every time you open Scripture, no matter where it is on your journey, in your in this stage in your Christian life, it is worth it. It is beneficial and you will be stronger for it if you put in the effort. So this morning, we're going to have to put in some effort. And we're going to tackle many difficult sayings. And we're going to do the best we can. And admittedly, there is no perfect understanding of the passage before us this morning. So I'm going to defend my reading, my interpretation by what I see biblically. So there are going to be a lot of uh, Parallel passages, so Trey, I apologize in advance. I'm not going to apologize for the word of God, but you're going to have to stay awake. And the rest of you, you're going to have to stay awake. Um, what I want us to see this morning is when Jesus speaks, there are things that are clear and literal, and then there are other things that are symbolic. And, and being able to understand the difference between the two is essential to make sense of this passage. And the other thing that I want to make clear, we can disagree on this and still be brothers. Uh, so this is not one of those things that we will divide over. Um, but I want you to notice what is most important, whatever that was, uh, that Jesus is mostly concerned here, again, like last week, not with the when, not with the where, but for his people during this time. He is less concerned with the events than for his disciples to be awake and to be aware until he returns that means us. This is an exhortation to us to be aware of the sign of the times, but also awake. Not sleeping, figuratively speaking, until he returns. So let's open our text and uh, we're going to move through the other thing. If I go through quickly, there's a lot of references. I want you to have them. Uh, I will slow down where you, where you need to, to lean in, but I, I want you to get this. So this may be a bit of drinking through a fire hose, but uh, I'm really looking forward to chapter 14. 
Because Jesus in front of Pilate is much easier than teaching the abomination of desolation, the second coming of, of Christ, and what this generation means. So, picking up in verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each one with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your omniscience. That you know all things. There's nothing hidden from you. There's nothing that surprises you. There's nothing above you. Nothing beneath you. Nothing outside of you. You know all things and you are omnipotent. You control all things. There is nothing outside of your, of your grasp and your control. There's nothing that you do not wield and direct for your purposes. Praise you in your perfect knowledge and perfect power that you sent your son. Truly God, to be truly man among us and in his humanity, submits to your authority to give us the example. Pray that we take his words not to be confused and perplexed, but to be encouraged. To be strengthened and challenged. To stand firm and to stand awake as his people in this world. That we may be found at attention. At the ready for our master to return. I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds and hearts that we might understand your word and apply it, that it might transform our affections and our actions, that you may be glorified in everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, and everything we feel. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's the only one worthy of praise. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, so we're going to continue this week. A lot of you asked, uh, if there's so much here, if this is so complicated, why am I only doing it in three sermons? Trust me, I wrestled with that. But thematically, I want you to see what's, what's going on here. So I'm grouping these together with purpose. I want to bring back up the, um, the framework of what I was looking at or what we discussed last week. Here's how we're reading chapter 13. Remember the distinction between this, these, these are uh, imminent, shorter things. That, those, those that are far off. So 1 through 13, you've got these things. The fall of Jerusalem, watchfulness in that. So you've got a future historic telling. Basically, Jesus, as prophet, 
as the Son of God, sees things in the future as if they are accomplished history. That's how he tells them. And so that's the first set of events in 1 through 13. The second set, those that day, looking not the, the tribulation that comes at the fall of Jerusalem, but the great tribulation that comes at the second, before the second coming of Christ. And those are those things that day. What we're going to see this morning is we're going to see a figurative retelling, a two parables that explain both of these. And he's going to use parabolic language, again, using the same markers of this and these, that and those. So I'll unfold that more as we go. Here's the first parable, literally in the Greek, from the fig tree, learn its parable. First parable, the fig tree. The fig tree should bring to mind some imagery we've already seen in chapter 11. The fig tree, as we know, is associated with the temple and the fall of the temple and the wickedness and emptiness of the temple. So again, Jesus brings back in this this imagery that we're familiar with and takes the analogy, takes the, the parable and tells it in sort of a different way. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus is saying something that is understood to everyone. Even if you have no background in agriculture, you are not from the Middle East, you realize when those little green things start poking out of the branches that, okay, life is coming, that winter is behind, that, that spring is here, and that summer is on its way. These are, these are universal truths. And so Jesus is saying that what I'm about to tell you, what I just told you, should be that recognizable to you. You should, this is clear. It should be clear to you. So he says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So before we go into this anymore, it's a good question. When will the leaves come? You know, the the, the disciples are wondering, okay, we're going to know the signs again. When are they going to happen? Just like we don't know exactly when the leaves are going to come out of the trees. We have no control over when a seed sprouts, when a, leaf, when a tree gives forth its, its leaves. Just like the promises of God, we know they will come. We just don't know exactly when. Just like we can trust spring comes after winter and summer comes after spring, we can trust the promises of God will come. This is what he's telling them. And he's telling them, be aware. You can discern the seasons, discern the things of God. And we will know when you see them. So now he gets into verse 29. So also when you see these things. This should jump out to you. We looked at this two weeks ago. Remember when the disciples asked, Teacher, look at these wonderful, not asked, stated. Look at these wonderful stones, these wonderful buildings. Jesus' response is, Do you not see these great buildings looking to something imminent? Also, these birth pains, the beginning of the birth pains that are, that are leading up to the new life that comes in Christ's return. These things, these closer things. So now we're looking at the imminent future events of the fall of Jerusalem. Just to remind you, we saw this in Matthew 24, 3. Remember, when the disciples asked, they asked two questions. Mark doesn't record them, but Matthew does. 
As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Referring to the fall of the stones, not one being left on top of another. And second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Uh, We'll get to that in the next paragraph. So that's where we are. So far, so good. Truly I say to you, verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now we got to unpack a little bit. Truly I say to you, this is emphatic in the Greek. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will certainly not pass away. He is saying it is just as I say it is. So here's where scholars and fundamentalists go to war or go crazy. This generation... What does this generation mean? Uh, like last week, I am not going to get into the, ba- the debates and the controversy. I'm going to tell you my position and I'm going to tell you why. I set it up and I stated because of the word this and because of the word generation. Both those are helpful. Let me tell you why. So if you believe that Jesus is talking about two prophecies, one imminent and one future, one tribulation of the fall of of Jerusalem and one ultimate great tribulation, as Matthew says, the, the beginning of the last days and the last day, when you're speaking about this generation, it is referring to the former and not the latter. And this is what I hold to. Also, the word generation typically, biblically, is a 40-year a, a period. The use of generation, especially by Jesus, if you just quickly turn to Chapter 9, verse 19. Now, generation is used symbolically a lot in the Old Testament, but when Jesus uses it, it's one of his favorite terms when he is frustrated with Jerusalem and his disciples. So if you remember in chapter 9, when they couldn't heal the boy, and the father comes uh, and says, your disciples were unable to cast it out, here's how Jesus responds. O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus knows that the end of his earthly ministry is is coming to a close. He knows he's not going to be with this generation very long. So he's, he's speaking about those with him right now. This, the close generation, refers to the disciples who will see these events with their very eyes. In fact, Mark wrote this in 65 A.D., Five years before the fall of Jerusalem where many of these disciples would see this with their very eyes. Jesus is speaking about this generation, these Jews alive right now. You, who, his audience. So, again, I could go into a lot more. The runner-up I've heard most often is this generation means fallen man in general or the, the Jewish people. Um, very strange use of, 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 of this generation and really not supported elsewhere. So I think with this reading, it is, it is helpful. This generation, this is helpful before we get into our second, second statement. Or excuse me, second section. So this generation will certainly not pass away until these things take place. Luke in Luke 21, 24 says that Jerusalem will be trampled under by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. So there is a connection here. The Gentiles will come in, the Romans, they will will raise or bring to the ground the temple, 
and the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, as we have seen since, has been conquered and taken over. It has been filled with, with, with Gentiles until, we covered this a couple weeks ago, all of the Gentiles are brought in. This, the Jerusalem being under siege is just a sign of God is still working within the Gentiles. And this is the beginning of those birth pains. But what I want you to be aware of is, again, not exactly what this generation means because so many people get this and they miss the rest of the context. Here's, here's Jesus' point here. Don't focus on the things that will pass away. Don't focus. Don't be sad. Don't be disappointed when your, your, your system of sacrifices and the temple falls apart. Focus on my words. My words will not pass away. That's why he follows up with the next verse. Our concern is not to be when things fall apart and when things don't live up to our expectations and, and, and thinking, what's going to happen? Where are we going to be? We are to focus not on the temple falling apart, not on even heaven and earth falling apart. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're worried about the temple? Heaven and earth is going to fall apart. But that should not scare you. That is not your concern. Trust me, my words will last so now we look at verse 31. What does heaven and earth will pass away? Again, there are different interpretations to this. I think it is as it says. Because scripture lays this out in many, many places. We're only going to look at two this morning. Uh, actually, three. I had five, so we'll, we'll, we'll stick with two. What does heaven and earth mean? It means the created order, the cosmos. Everything that God put into place, heaven is where God dwells. Earth is where man dwells. This is common language in the Old Testament. If you uh, can, turn to Psalm 102. This will also be on the screen. But here's the language. Uh, there are many places that says that heaven and earth will, will uh, pass away. But I love the poetic language of Psalms, and we're going to look at our passage from Hebrews as well. Psalm 102, verse 25 of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Heaven and earth, the things that God created will pass away. But if you are in him, if you are his children, you shall dwell secure. This is Jesus' point. One more in Hebrews. I think the scriptures mention this so much. One, because it's important. But two, because we are fearful people. Because when everything that is comfortable to us is promised to fade away, I have heard people say, well, what if I don't want to lose this world? What if I don't want to give up these things? You are focusing way too small. You're focusing on the creation rather than the creator. Here's the language he uses in chapter 12, and we, we dug into this in our Hebrew study. Picking up in Hebrews 12, 26. At this time, so the contrast of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai would be shaken. Mount, si Mount Zion will never be shaken. At this time, his voice shook the earth. But now, as he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, uh, this isn't on, on the screen. Here's the bonus for you who have your Bibles open. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Even if heaven and earth pass away, the, everything we know, God has an unshakable kingdom. And it is rooted in his word. It is spoken by his word. God is so honorable and so perfect and without error. When he speaks it, it must come to pass. God's words are more secure than the highest mountains, than the deepest seas, than the, than the stars and the sun and the heavens. God's word is what we put our hope in, not the things that we can see and touch. Amen? But here's the beauty of this. Why would God destroy why would heaven and earth pass away? Why did he make it so that it could just pass away? I've, you, many of you have heard me say the, the grand biblical theology theme of Scripture is God dwelling with man. He, he creates a creation so that Adam can dwell with him. If you take the place that, where God dwells and the place where Adam dwells and you destroy them, and you remake them, we see the consummation of all things in Revelation 21, where God now dwells with man. That is the consummation and the recreation of all things. Heaven and earth will pass away, but we will dwell together. Look at this language. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. This is the consummation of all things. We don't need a separate heaven and, and earth anymore, because now God dwells with his people. This is the perfect consummation and recreation of all things. And it is his word that tells us this. It is the promise of his word. So when you see the world shaking around you, if you are here on the last days when it seems like everything is going to hell, and it is, take comfort in his words because his words Jesus uses the same emphatic language here. But my words will certainly not pass away. Jesus is the word made flesh. The father speaking through him, the very personification of the promises of God. It is only God and his word that is unfading, that is everlasting. I want to look at one more place of comfort and encouragement to the believer in 1 Peter. 1 Peter Chapter 1, Peter gives a real practical application with this principle. What does this mean for the Christian? What does this mean for the believer? Beginning in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, because of the truth of the word of God, here's what comes out of it, a sincere brotherly love, love for one another earnestly with from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, remember the shakable, unshakable things, through the living and abiding word of God. Our very salvation, of very being born again, comes from the word of God. For 
All flesh is like grass. In all its glory, like the flower of grass, quoting from Isaiah 40 here, the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Our hope is not in creation. Our hope is not in anything else but the word, the promises of God, the things that will never pass away. We've been going through J.I. Packer's Knowing God with a small group, and I want to share just a quick quote where he quotes Puritan Samuel Clark. He says, Christians deprive themselves of their most solid comforts by their unbelief and forgetfulness of God's promises. For there is no extremity so great, but there are promises suitable to it. And the abundantly sufficient, and it is abundantly sufficient for our relief in it. The promises of God are fitted for every human ailment, every human disposition and discouragement, and they are sufficient for our relief. That is what we hold to. That is what we look to. Don't be disappointed when the temple falls or when heaven and earth may pass away because my words won't. Good? That's our first parable. And before we get into our second one, let's be careful on these difficult doctrines. Uh, again, I could have spent three sermons on this, but we're moving quickly. Too many people get caught in overanalyzing these things. At some point, we have to realize, I'm not God. This is above my pay grade, and the secret things belong to the Lord. What, what he gives us to understand, great. We dig in and we apply it so that we may be found obedient in him. But don't linger on the slippery rocks. Make your way through the tough passages Look to the meadow on the other side. Find the encouragement in the word of God and this beautiful view of what God has revealed, his redemption and his recreation. That is our focus when we look at a passage like this. So, parable number two, section number two. Before we get in, I want you to notice what is repeated five times in here. Some version of Stay awake, be on your guard, keep awake. These are synonyms within the Greek. But Jesus says it five times using three different Greek words. You think he's trying to make a point? You think he's trying to say something? I want to quickly tell you what each one of these means. Be on your guard. Same word from verse 9. Look, watch, pay attention. This is discernment. Don't be caught off guard. Number two, keep awake. This is watchful or lively, especially at night without sleep. This is, this is wakefulness. And yes, that's a word. Wakefulness, that you be awake at all times. And then the next one, stay awake. This is vigilance over time. Gregorio in the Greek. Gregory, it's a great name. Watchful or, faith, or, or vigilant one. Discernment, wakefulness, and vigilance. That's what Jesus is getting at in this, in this section. And then we've got a hard transition in verse 32. But, this is not a continuation, but a contrast. But concerning that day, remember, further off, or that hour. He was talking about these things and this generation. Now, that day. So, typically we read this in the same breath. This is why people get, get so confused. Because if it's this generation, right now, the disciples, and now we're talking about that day when the sun returns, what do we do with this? It is problematic if you read it in the same breath. 
But if you look at the details here, the first example, he says, if you see the, see the fig tree, you will know these things. This generation and what's coming up, no one knows. Verse 32, verse 33, verse 35, no one knows. There is knowledge in the last one. There's, there's things that can be discerned. This cannot be. So there's a distinction here between this and that, between the knowledge and things that cannot be discerned. So here, Jesus is answering the second question from the disciples. When will all these things take place? And when will be the time of your coming and the end of the age? Now we're looking figuratively, parabolically at the second question. So let's get into the first difficulty here. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Let's first deal with no one knows. There is great danger in this. So many people have read this, no one knows, and they think, I know. I'm going to get my calculator out. I'm going to look at the calendar. I'm going to project this into the future. There have been countless faulty predictions, and many cults have been based off of the promise that they can figure this out. And typically, it a, a Christian cult is someone who takes Christian doctrine, they, they distort it most oftenly with the second coming, and it requires some kind of legalistic allegiance to their prophets. Let me give you some examples. As early as the second century, Montanus predicted uh, that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime, led many people to follow him, even church fathers. Further on, uh, there are plenty of examples in the Reformation era. Erasmus thought that the, the uh, Antichrist was, was, was going to come out of, of some Protestant seed, uh, some apostate from the Catholic Church. There were Lutherans, Mennonites, Presbyterians, Anabaptists. Uh, you go down the list. Many people thought and, and claimed that Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. But closer to home, a man named William Miller predicted in 1843 that Jesus was going to come. He produced a lot of followers that became Millerites. Out of them came Ellen White, who predicted in 1844 that uh, Jesus would have this investigative judgment, uh, crazy doctrine. But basically, she's the founder, one of the founders of seven-day Adventism. The Adventists means coming. Their entire doctrine, their entire system of religion is based on knowing when Jesus came, assuming that Jesus came, and now he's got this bloody sacrifice that he's doing in heaven. Crazy stuff. Also, from them came all of our dispensational doctrines. The, those who, who look to the, the imminent return of Jesus, that because he's going to come at any time, and that's going to be our main focus and the focus of, of, of prophecy, then all of our efforts and all of our, um, all of our interpretation of Scripture is going to be seen through that lens. But failing to read, no one knows. And then my favorite, Harold Camping, who's the Christian version of the Washington Generals. If you're not a basketball fan, thank you, David. If you're not a basketball fan, they, they play the Harlem Trotters and never win. He's the Christian version of the Wiley Coyote. You know, fill it in. At least 12 times, we've pretty much lost count how many times he has predicted the end of the earth and the second coming of Christ. Uh, also, I forgot Jehovah's Witnesses. Christ was supposed to return in 1874, 1914, and many, 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 many more after that. The Bible says if you are a false prophet, if you prophesy something that doesn't come through, you should be put to death. These cults should be put to death, but we should be aware of them. Because when they come to your door, when they try to convince you, remind them of the lies that they are based on. 
And they're, they're based on a clear command. No one knows. Not even the angels, not even the sun. I was telling Jesse this week, I was like, okay, I got to cover this issue. This issue. Now I got to cover this issue. So now we got to deal with not the sun. This also causes a lot of heresies and a lot of problems. Um, I want to try to make this simple. This is not Jesus' subordination to the Father. He is not a different order under the Father. This is not his subjugation to the Father. He is not lesser in, in value or importance. This is his submission to the Father. This is voluntarily in his humanity to show that he is truly man like us. He submits in his humanity because this is not necessary for his earthly ministry. He came the first time to bring the gospel of peace, that, that the good news will go out to the nations. The second time, he's coming with a sword. Right now, he's not worried about when he will come back. And so in his humanity, he walked with us so that we could walk with him. I want to look at Philippians 2 here. Many of you should know this, but think about this when this comes up. How could it be that the son could not know something? It is not because of divine ignorance. It doesn't mean that there's something lacking in his divinity. It means that he is full in his humanity. And that he does it voluntarily. Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is a great early hymn of the church. It is also meant to spur us on to humility. Why does it spur us on to humility? Because if Jesus humbled himself this way, how could we ever be arrogant? If Jesus did this, how could we ever stand on our own strength and our own confidence? Look at verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is not a fault of Jesus' divinity. This is proof of Jesus' humanity. There is a difference. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. The whole point is, is not that the son lacked knowledge of something, but why did the son take on flesh in the first place? The culmination, the climax of his humility is becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we see the son's humanity and we hear others, doubters and, and skeptics who say, see, even Jesus didn't know this. They missed the point. He took on flesh. He humbled himself so that he would stand in our place, so that he would fulfill the law and fulfill the scriptures, so that he would die in our place, so that he would rise to new life because he is exalted before the Father and in Christ he will exalt us. He will draw us to himself. We are in him because he submitted to the plan of the Father. He submitted in his humanity perfectly and is exalted truly in his deity perfectly. That should be our focus when we read a troubling passage like this. But our natural curiosity is not unique to us. Look at Acts 1. The disciples, even after the ascension, are thinking here is now the time. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus has resurrected from the grave. 
He has walked around for, for 40 days, and now he's about to ascend into heaven. He's saying, okay, is it, they're saying, is this it? Now, is this the time when, when Israel will, will return to its prominence? Look at how Jesus responds. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus teaches us to submit to the Father, to trust the Father. I trust the Father. I submit to him. So should you. That's not what you focus on. Here's what you focus on. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Our focus is not when Jesus returns. It's to be Jesus' witnesses. It's to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus, at the same time, shows his solidarity with humanity and his Trinitarian unity. We see him in perfect agreement with the Father and the Spirit and all this working out so that we may be sent out. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't lose the focus of, of all this. Jesus, and why doesn't Jesus want to know, want us to know? We got to be honest with ourselves. If we knew, we would slack off. If we knew Jesus is coming back on, on, on this date, I'm going to start preparing like we do with everything else, like with our, with our homework, our meal prep, or whatever it is. I'm going to start doing it the night before. If we knew, you're, we're laughing because this is true, because this is all of us. But if we don't know, we must act in faith. We are challenged to live every day like Jesus could come back at any moment. We are challenged to live like Jesus is actually watching that Jesus is actually coming, he's, he's actually requiring us to be vigilant, to be awake. Don't be consumed with the when and the where and all that. But what should I think now? What should I be found doing now? What is required of me now? Here's where he gets into the, the uh, exhortation and then the parable. Be on guard, verse 33, keep awake. These two words put together, the discernment and the, the wakefulness. Be wise. Be awake. Remain watchful. For you do not know when the time will come. So I give many pastoral applications and, and uh, explanations for this. But shouldn't it be enough that this is what Jesus tells us? Shouldn't it be enough that this is what he wants for us? Shouldn't it be enough that he tells us, be on your guard? Be awake. Because you don't know when the time will come. He has us in this world for a purpose. We are his witnesses. We are his messengers. And we are to be awake. And we are to be vigilant. And so to help us understand that, he uses his second parable. And if you notice, this combines a lot of Jesus' parable. You've got the, the vineyard owner, the faithful steward. You've got the parable of the talents. You've got the, 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 the ten virgins. This is all kind of wrapped up into one. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now, there, there's a lot here. So I want you to see a few things. This parable, it's like a man going on a journey. And he says the next verse is the master of the house. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge. The, the, the word here is he gives them authority. The one with all authority, all authority, Jesus says, on heaven and earth has been given to me. And what does he do when he leaves? He gives it to us. 
the God of the universe, the creator of all things, who upholds the world by the word of his power, and says, I have given you authority. I have given you stewardship of my gospel, of my church, of your resources. Everything is mine, and I entrust it to you. But I'm coming back. This is beautiful picture of the church in one short verse. He leaves them, puts, puts his servants in charge. And uh, we don't understand this because we don't have servants here. And we are 21st century Westerners, and this kind of makes our skin crawl a little bit. We think of either Victorian era or uh, imperialistic subjugation. But this is very common for many people throughout, many, uh, throughout much of history and still around much of the world today. You can rent a house in many countries that come with servants. This is their job. It is not beneath them to do it. This is what they do. And if you're in a large house, there will be a servant to welcome you at the door, to attend to your needs, to attend to the garden, to attend to the food. This was commonplace. And if you are a master of a large mansion, if you are a wealthy man like the man in this, in this parable, it is, it is understood and is accepted that you will have servants. That is who we are. We are laborers in his house Notice what he says here. Each with his work. If you labor in the kingdom of God, if you labor in his house, we each have our own work. The cook doesn't get mad at the butler. The maid doesn't get mad at the gardener because they're given different talents. They say, I'm going to do this for the master because he's a good master. And I love the master. And there should be a busyness. If you've ever been to one of those, those places, I have friends who visited Scotland and stayed at a castle, and it was like this, this, this busyness and scurriness of, of the, the, the servants running to and fro to make sure everything was perfect for the honored guests. That is what the kingdom of God should look like. We are, we are, we are in an excited busy. We are about our Father's business. We are working steadily, each with his own work. And there is no jealousy or contrasting your work versus mine because he has given us that work. The parable of the talents falls in this context. And he singles out one, though, the doorkeeper to stay awake. The doorkeeper's got one job, the very important job, stay awake. Why should the doorkeeper stay awake? Because you are attending to the safety of everyone else inside. That is the call of the pastor. That is the call of the doorkeeper to stand there, to watch out for the enemy. If a burglar comes, you are to be on watch. If someone comes in the room with a gun or bad doctrine, it is our job to stand in front of the sheep. Doorkeepers stay awake, but also the doorkeeper waits for the master to return. The doorkeeper makes sure that everyone else is in, the, in the house is ready, that when the master returns, that everything is just the way he wants it. That he is ready to be received and to be celebrated as he should. This is an important job for the doorkeeper. Stay awake. And so, and I want us to think about that for a moment within the body of Christ. We have been given authority as, as his stewards. And we all have different work to do. And so if you are a member, this is why membership is important. This is why we, we emphasize this. If you are a member of this body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we're, we're all different. Some of us more visible than others. Some of us more seeming, seemingly more important than others. But we are laboring in our Father's house. We are laboring for treasures that will not pass away. 
You know, we, we accept this in, in so many other spheres. Any football fans know you can't have 12 quarterbacks. You can't have 12 linemen. You couldn't run the ball, but nothing else would happen. Everyone plays their position, and when they play it right, it is beautiful. It all works together, so much more so in the body of Christ. Everyone has their work. And that is what we are here for, to spur one another on to these good works so that we are ready when the master returns. Verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows or in the morning. Uh, So why these four times? These are the four Roman watches of the night. This is 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and 3 to 6 respectively. If a centurion fell asleep on his watch, my dad's famous short joke, shortest man in the Bible is a centurion who fell asleep on his watch. You'll get that later. Terrible, but this is what happens when you grow up with a dad who has those jokes that you, you can't get them out of your head. And so it was there I had to say it. Um, these are the four watches throughout the night. If the centurion falls asleep, he will probably be killed. And if he falls asleep and an invader comes in, everyone will be killed. Don't fall asleep on your post. That's the, 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 the purpose of this. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So is this literal or figurative? Does it mean we can never fall asleep? That's why the, the people who interpret Scripture literally, they don't interpret everything literally. If you're going to be literal all the way through, you should be consistent and you just, you know, take a lot of uppers and never go to sleep. It's not what this means. But if there's a practical example, what is a good example of sleeping and a bad example of sleeping? So we're going to be, our next Bible study, we're, we're, we're going to start Jonah in August. Here's a bad example of sleeping. Jonah is sleeping in the boat, running from the very presence of God. The full power of God is being thrust on this, this, this boat. They're, they're, they're about to be capsized. Everyone else is frantic, and he is sleeping on the job. He should be a faithful minister of the gospel. He's supposed to go to Nineveh, but he's Nineveh, but he's sleeping as if nothing is happening. Versus Jesus, who sleeps in the boat. He sleeps in the boat with full confidence and the power and the preservation and the deliverance of God, knowing that by the very word of his mouth, the seas will be calmed. That is how we should sleep. But this is not the sleepfulness that, that is being talked about here. Let, let me give you some example. Typically, sleeping in the Bible is not good. Resting is a great thing. Sleeping is not a good thing, especially during sermons. I'm not going to name names. I should, but I'm not going to. Proverbs 6, very, very, very quickly here. Um, Proverbs 6. Proverbs has a lot to say about the uh, sleeping one. You know this. If your kids grew up on Humania, it'll always be in your head. Uh, Proverbs 6, 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Just know we're supposed to be ants here, not sluggards. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. To some of you, that sounds really good right now. uh, To rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is not good to be a sleeper in this sense. There is an exhortation in Isaiah 60, very quickly, because I love this passage. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Here's what happens when God's people are awake. 
and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Amen. We are not to take our freedom in Christ for granted. We are not to be sluggards, sleepful. I don't know I keep saying sleepful. We are not to be people who goes on about our days if nothing matters. I'm in Christ, so none of this matters. Uh, we'll give us a couple. Yeah, we got, we're, we're good. <laughs> uh, Luke 21. So I want to look at a couple passages in, in Luke. Here's what, here's what we do. This is Jesus' exhortation. Luke adds this to this Olivet Discourse. And I think it's helpful. Here's how this is practical. What does it mean to not sleep? Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Every one of us has been there. And that day, again the future day, come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But you stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You stay awake at all times. This is the life of the believer. We know the promises in Christ that we will be delivered from these things, but we will also stand before him. We will give an account of what we have done with our time and our talents and our treasures. We will stand before God and the words you want to hear are well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, you, your, your job was to dust the vases, but those vases are spotless. Well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, your job is to prune the roses and they are fruitful and beautiful. Well done, good and faithful servant. It is so easy to get caught up in the things of the world. Within this context is the parable of the 12 virgins, which we read earlier for corporate, for corporate reading. And the parable of the talents, the master who goes away and gives to each one, and he comes back and expects a return. These parables are given in this context. And then right, right after that, following is the separation of the sheep and the goats. You unwise virgins, you who bury your talents, you will be set aside to the left with the goats. You will be destroyed because your master came back and found you drunk and beating servants and not faithful. This is a serious warning. If you think you are in the body of Christ and you can sleepwalk your way through, you may not be. This is a very serious warning. When Jesus says stay awake, he means stay awake. We've got plenty of energy for all things throughout the week, but are we as vigilant and as attentive to the things of God? Are you ready for Jesus to come at any moment? When he comes, what will he find you doing? When he comes, what will he say to you? Final verse. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What I say to you, 12, I say to all. What I say to this generation, I say to every generation. 
The Holy Spirit witnesses to you, to the church. Stay awake. This is the call to the church throughout every age. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. This is the final word in this chapter. Stay awake. Gregorio. Why so many times? Yeah, Jesus, we got the point. Yeah, Tim, you said that already. Why so many times? Do I have to say? We're stubborn. We're thick-headed. We don't listen. We don't learn. We make the same mistakes over and over again. So we must be told over and over and over again. This word, this should be ringing in their ears even two nights later when they fall asleep in the garden. Twice. Stay awake. They already forgot two days later. Most of you will forget on your way home. But I hope you don't. I hope you take these words and listen to them. Our final cross-reference will be in Revelation 16, verse 15, where Jesus says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. If you are not ready for Christ to come, you're going to be like that guy who's, who gets walked in on in the shower. And you're going to be naked and embarrassed, and it is not a good look. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Keep your garments on, your righteous gown, Christ's righteousness, the wedding garments, the entrance into the feast. We wake up every day and we put our spiritual suits on because Jesus is coming. It might might not be today, but it's going to be tomorrow or the day after. I'm going to be ready when he comes because it is blessed to be. So I want to give our application from Luke chapter 12. How do we apply this? Because this is, this is daunting for believers. This is a difficult balance to find. We are to be aware and be alert, but also we need to be present in our lives. Um, I'm not going to read the whole section, but I want to read the, the first section. So this is part of your homework. I'm giving you homework each week uh, because good teachers do. So go home and read the rest of this, this chapter. But I want to start here. What does this look like for Christians? Stay dressed for action. This is Luke 12, 35. And keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. See how all of this imagery in the Jesus' parables come together. Look what he says here. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Wait a second. Listen to the words here. If you are that faithful servant, there is no better motivation. Jesus is going to dress himself as a servant. He's going to tell you to lay down and he's going to serve you. This is the promise for those who are found faithful when Jesus returns. The Son of God, our Lord, will dress himself to serve you. Well done, good and faithful servant. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That is incredible. Let that sink in for a moment. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, 
that the master of the house had, had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is a difficult balance. Because, let's be honest, we are called to stay awake as Christians. That doesn't mean that we quit our jobs and stand on the street corner with signs saying that the sky, sky is falling, the end is near. It means, or excuse me, it also doesn't mean that we uh, just go through the motions and never give any thought to the things of God. There's a difficult balance to be in the world, but not of it. We must raise our children. We must go to work. We must pay bills. But yet we are always watchful. We're always awake. We're always aware that we are his ambassadors, his witnesses. And to those who desire to kick back and retire, eat, drink, and be merry, is that how you want your Father to find you, Jesus to find you when he returns, idle? So the call is this. Live as though Jesus is watching, and he is. Live as though Jesus is coming, and he is. You can trust him. Trust his words. Don't sleep, but you can rest. Because we also live. If you are in Christ, that Jesus has taken you and hidden you in him. And when he comes, he's coming for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to open your word. There is never a time when we open your word and we are not strengthened by it, encouraged by it. Lord, help us to be as fervent in the easy passages as in the difficult passages. Help us to be shaped and molded by your words that will never pass away. Help us to trust in, the, in its promises Help us to obey its commands. Help us to listen to its examples. Help us to be instructed by its doctrine. Help us to, help us to praise in its worship. Lord, forgive us when we are too closely held to the things of this world. When we love the creation and the gifts more than the creator and the giver. Lord, forgive us. We have not been faithful servants. We have wasted much of our time and our energy on exalting ourselves, on building our own kingdom. Pray that your spirit would convict us and form us into the image of Christ, that we may be dutiful servants, that we may be diligent and watchful workers, that we may receive him and joy and excitement, and hear those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.